rockzone.com. I love to live in the hunt life, along with my kids and my lovely wife. Taking in the land that the good Lord made and doing the things that make this country great. Doing my part to keep the things in line, respecting the land that's yours and mine. No doubt about it, this right here's a good life. It's living the hunt life. Welcome to the on-air home for the Brotherhood of Hunters. Welcome to the Hunt Life Outdoor Show. Brought to you by Hunt Life. Take aim. And now, here are your hosts, Jeff Lagerman, Kevin Favor, and Kirk Waltz. Good morning and welcome to the Hunt Life Outdoor Show. I'm Jeff Lagerman, Kirk Waltz. Good morning. Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing good, man. It's uh, it's springtime. It is. Turkeys are gobbling. And oh, yeah. What more could you ask for? Uh, Favor, Kevin Favor, is actually on assignment. He is. Yeah, he's on assignment. He, uh, uh, spring break for his kids and Georgia's turkey season is in full swing. Yep. And he said, Hey, man, you mind if I miss, you know, cause he's hunting all around the state of Georgia. Right. And he is, uh, getting after him. He's had some challenges too. The weather has been far from, uh, cooperative the last few days. I mean, we've had a couple of big frontal systems come through. The weather's gone from one extreme to the to the next. It has, and and earlier this week, uh, I had to deal with that a little bit with uh, our guest today. That's Dave Edwards. He is the uh, manager, wildlife biologist for Westervelt Wildlife Services out of Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Is that, did I say that right? Tuscaloosa. You did. That sounded good. Alabama. Okay. Yeah. I just want to make sure I'm kind of talking correctly. No, you enunciated correctly on I've, that. I've one. had my caffeine. Good morning, Dave. Good morning, man. How, how you doing, doing this morning? Ah, doing good. Doing yep. good. Ready for a. Full blown, full steam Saturday. Well, yeah, we we uh, in fact uh, you were talking about some of this weather that we've had uh, across the southeast. Me and Dave actually turkey hunted together on Monday and Tuesday. And for those that don't know, uh, Westervelt Wildlife Services uh, not only manages their own land, but they've also managed lands for other landowners ac- across the country. Correct? That's right. That's right. We manage really close to a half million acres for private landowners. That's a lot of land. That's a Dave. lot of land. And, uh, folks, if you are a member of QDMA, which is the Quality uh, Deer Management Association, and you get your, uh, I guess it's bi-monthly publication, Quality Whitetails. Right. And you open it up. Uh, every issue has a section in it called Age This. And it's, you know, they got trail camera pictures of bucks, and then they've got a panelist of, uh, uh experts. I'm not sure if they're all, are they all, is everybody a biologist, Dave? Yes, they are. Okay, all wildlife biologists, and, and they give their opinions off of trail cameras about deer. So when you read your issue of Quality Whitetails, you can, you know, go in there to the Aegis section and see that Dave is one of the, uh, one of the panel members. And then also Dave writes articles for that publication, which, uh, Dave, your most recent one, I think, is Moving Mountains. Is that right? That's right. That's right. About a property, uh, in the mountains of West Virginia, or Virginia, West Virginia, that uh, really start off really rugged and raw and turned it into a wildlife paradise. And then also Dave uh, does a lot of writing for another publication called Wildlife Trends, which is one of my favorite publications uh, that there is. In fact, uh, you do what, the, the wildlife management calendar in that publication as well as other articles? That's right. And can I, and he, it, it's a, also a bi-monthly uh, type magazine or journal and what I do is put a management calendar in the, in the back, uh, maybe two or three pages long with about 10 or 15 items, seasonal, seasonal item, items that may jog the memory of, of folks to say, Oh yeah, I need to check on my clover or, uh, you know, I need to burn this month, that kind of thing. 
And uh, I was talking with Dave while we were hunting on Monday and Tuesday, chasing turkeys uh, in the state of Georgia. And there's there's a couple hot topics that are going on in states, I guess you could say, uh, in our listening area because it's starting to broaden all the time. Baiting. Yep, that was a big issue too on uh, one of our uh, website message boards. Yep, and and it's it's becoming a hot topic because there are uh, I don't know the exact count of states, Dave, that have legal baiting. Uh, he knows. Do you want to throw I, them out there? I believe there's 15, if I'm not mistaken. Um, mostly, uh, you know, as far as the big picture goes, Texas, Oklahoma. Kansas, Arkansas, Louisiana is a big chunk of states right there that allow baiting, but um, and a few up in the northeast and and uh, Washington and Oregon uh, up in the very northwest corner allow baiting. But there's there's 15: uh, New, Hamp- New Hampshire, New Jersey, Delaware, Ohio, West Virginia, North Carolina, Florida, Louisiana, Arkansas, Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, and Arizona. Right. Okay. And uh, South Carolina, uh, Kentucky, and a few other states have partial baiting. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess those states allow baiting in particular areas. Is that correct? That's right. That's right. You know, say like South Carolina, the low country, uh, the, the southern half of the state is allowed to bait where the northern half is not. And there's a couple other, you know, as far as partial baiting, you know, um, there's. Lo- probably five or six that allow that yeah kind of what line of sight baiting then mm-hmm. yeah. well, well you got baiting and then you got feeding there's there's right. there's, there's two i guess that's what i was yeah there's two different yeah. terms here and what we're talking about today is <clears throat> is baiting and then i guess also we'll kind of mix in the topic of of feeding uh and the reason that this has kind of come about is that there's two states uh, in the country right now that are actually considering allowing baiting uh, one of them is georgia uh, and that has uh, gotten a lot of press in the state of Georgia. The other one is Alabama because the conversation is going on within the halls of their political workings in the state. Right. Uh, and Dave and I were talking on Monday and Tuesday, and, and we thought that this was a great topic to talk about uh, today. Is it good for wildlife, what Dave's opinions are on it? And then also the other topic that we're going to get into today is uh, and I didn't even know this until I was talking to Dave about it because I thought it would be a great topic because we had a personal experience with coyotes and turkeys mm-hmm. and what impact that coyotes have had on turkeys. And, Dave, you did your um, master's uh, thesis thesis on this, right? I did. I did. It was really uh, a turkey study uh, that involved predators, and um, we were basically putting backpack, you know, trapping hen turkeys and putting backpack radios on them. And then we were trying to trap everything with a canine tooth around them uh, and put collars on them. And there was actually a team of, I think we had five grad students on the project. Um, so everybody kind of had their own little group of animals they were following. Everybody's helping each other trap and so forth. But basically when the hens went to get on the nest and, and started nesting, we really intensively monitored the, the predators around them to see who was either catching and killing the hen if, if she got killed and or who busted the nest up. Um, and even, you know, even with collars, it was a little bit hard to tell exactly who got in there. But, I mean, when I say intensively monitoring, we were monitoring what we called focal runs, where we'd focus in on the animals around that nest, and we would literally monitor, get a, get a location on them every hour, and if they got close to the nest area, every 30 minutes. 
Huh, that's interesting. Yeah, so we're going to get into that topic, but first we'll start off with, with baiting. Uh, your opinions on baiting day, because uh, right now, you know, in in the southeast right now, because Georgia and Alabama have this going <clears> on right now currently, and then other states, you know, there's a lot of hunters that are for it or against it, certainly have an opinion one way or the other. What are your thoughts on baiting? Sh- should it be allowed from a biologist standpoint? Uh, from a from a bio, uh, biological standpoint, I don't see the the need in baiting, or, or I'm against baiting from that standpoint. Um, obviously, there is a it's a very debatable subject, as you saw on the forum. I kind of uh, stepped in the ant bed, so to speak, and uh, put my two cents in on a forum, and it, it turned into a you know three or four page forum there. So there's a lot of you know there's a lot of passion behind it for sure uh, on both sides of the, of the story. And what actually made me uh, pipe in on the forum was uh, I'm on a committee here in Alabama uh, to start talking about baiting, and they're they're pulling in biologists and so forth to get their opinions and their experience and their data. And so uh, I was in the middle of putting something together for that when that forum started lighting up a little bit, and so I, I tapped in on it. But um, I've got a pretty you know pretty strong opinion about. Uh, baiting is not good uh, for wildlife in general, but uh, I don't know how much detail you want me to go in at, at, at this point. But uh, you know, just my big overall opinion is this, it's not something that's benefiting the wildlife. Well, well because, because I mean, heck, I mean, Kirk, uh, you look at uh, you know some of the big buck states, you know, Illinois, right, uh, Iowa, <laughs> Kansas, uh, Indiana, Kent. <clears throat> But Kansas now, Kansas is one of them that allows baiting. Well, and, and in some uncertain terms, and, and uh, Dave, let me say uh, that I really enjoyed the debate that we had over the uh, forums. I thought you, uh, you 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 put your standpoint on there and and did so in a way that made it a little better to understand why you you couldn't or shouldn't and why you should. And I think that uh, when you look at the western states, for instance, you know, like we're talking about. In, in terms of baiting, in a way, with the amount of corn that's harvested and grown out there, it's almost like that. But your point was well taken over the fact that, you know, food plots would seem to be more of a direction that you would steer your your clients towards. That's right. And, if, you know, there's a lot of reasons that, that, that I don't think baiting is, is good or in the best interest of the resource of the wildlife. Right. But really one of the big things that hangs me up and, and and I see it in Florida, I see it in South Carolina, places where baiting is legal, is that the landowner or the hunting club ends up going into defensive baiting mode because they feel like they're they've got to bait because their neighbors are baiting. They're afraid their neighbors are gonna bait, you know, with real heavy and pull the deer off of their property. So right. they end up spending a lot of time, a lot of energy, a lot of resources, money, uh, in defensive baiting. And what that does is it draws away from doing good sound wildlife management on their property. And yeah. When I say sound wildlife management, I mean habitat management on a, on a bigger scale. You know, stuff like you're doing, Jeff, where you're thinning timber, burning it, uh, using herbicides to promote good quality browse. You're intensely managing your food plot. You know, you're liming and fertilizing. And I see that when people start defensive baiting and, you know, I it just I see it in folks that that no baiting doesn't really help them, but they just feel like they've got to because they, their neighbor is well is and baiting. I, you know, and in defense of you, in defense of your position on this, I for one 
the, the, the club that I kind of, I'm like the grand poobah kind of in a way. We have never done that at our place. And we know that because we're right real close to the Florida border, the people that are to the south of us do do that. And I know that for a fact. And I do yeah. know that the guys just north of us do it somewhat. Now, I don't know much about it because I've never, you know, walked all over their property, but I know they, they do. And right. I can tell from, tell you from a personal experience, we've harvested as, as many good deer on our property by managing the food plots. And last year we had 13 food plots and the year before that we had 17. We have had as much success not doing it, though we, we could have, but we chose not to. And I know that it didn't deter from the amount of deer that we were seeing. It seemed like, and, and I know that I've read a lot of your articles and I've seen a lot of study on this, that, that deer is a browser and he's going to continue to move around even though he's going to eat the corn. They like to eat an assortment of foods just like we do. That's right. That's right. Actually, uh, Charles Ruth, uh, he's a deer coordinator of South Carolina, uh, pulled together data from, I believe it was over eight years. And it actually showed in the northern half where they're not allowed to bait and the, and on top of that, the deer density in the northern half of South Carolina is actually lower than the south, the low country. Right. South, south part. Uh, hunters where they were not allowed to bait were seeing more deer, um, having better hunts, killing, killing even, let's see, they were, they were killing more bucks. And um, and then something else he looked at was vehicle uh, collisions with deer, and there was actually uh, a higher percentage of vehicle collision uh, collisions in the northern half. So, right, and that's you know that's kind of the, I guess that's what I I kind of get hung up on is folks that are really pushing for baiting and really you know a proponent of it and and trying to get these bills pushed to, to allow baiting. Most of them, I mean, you know, you can't speak for everybody, but the big underlying reason is usually because they feel like it's going to help them see and harvest more deer. Right. And all the data we have is showing the opposite. And, and in fact, you know, I've got a lot of clients in Florida, as you know, and one of my biggest challenges is getting those hunters off the feeders. And I'll show them every year. I'll come to a, we call them camp house seminars where I summarize their data, their harvest data and so forth. But all of my clients also collect what we call hunter observation data. And as part of that, they have to write down what location they were at. So in other words, were they hunting over a feeder? Were they over a food plot? Were they in the woods? Were they in a clear cut? There's four or five different locations. And I don't care what property it is. I don't care what client it is. That graph looks the same every year. All right. Well, uh, we're going to talk more about this because uh, this is certainly a hot topic, not only in the states where we're talking about Georgia and Alabama, but also in the states you know, that have had it for a while. And I think this is an interesting debate. Folks, this is Dave Edwards. He's a wildlife biologist with Westervelt Wildlife Services, and you're listening to the Hunt Life Outdoor Show. You can tell a lot about a person just by looking at them. What they wear speaks volumes as to who they are and where they stand on a number of things, from their favorite team or the place they like to eat to what they really believe in. I'm Major Harding, president of Hunt Life. When you see someone wearing a Hunt Life shirt or hat, you'll know some things about them right away. You'll know they're passionate about the outdoors. You'll know they invest time and energy and funds into preserving and protecting wildlife because they care about it. You'll know that they enjoy sharing the hunting experience with everyone they can. And you'll know that, for them, hunting isn't a hobby, it's a way of life. If you're a hunter, it's time you told the world what kind of person you are. 
Visit HuntLife.com and browse the hunt shop for hats and shirts and decals and more. And while you're there, become a member. It's fast, easy, and absolutely free. And you'll connect with a world of people who share your feelings about hunting. Take aim with Hunt Life. America's number one camo pattern just got better. All new breakup infinity from Mossy Oak. Six layers of detail give it great depth of feel. Twelve years of research give it unequaled, effective design. Together, they break up Hunter's outline like never before. Check it out in stores or online at mossyoak.com. Break up infinity from Mossy Oak. It's not a passion, it's an obsession. There was the explosion, and I remember just opening my eyes, and I got both of my legs. I had surgery after surgery, and what's going to happen next? The Wounded Warrior Project said, look, brother, everything's going to be okay. Three months from now, four months from now, a year from now, you'll be fine. I don't know if I would be as well-adjusted as I am now if it wasn't for them. To learn more, call 1-877-832-6997 or visit woundedwarriorproject.org. And it's me, Jeff Lagerman, with Kirk Waltz. And folks, you can catch up with us throughout the week by becoming a fan of, of Hunt Life on Facebook. We just wrapped up a Hunt Life caption contest. Congratulations to Ron Schumacher, who won $100 shopping spree from Hunt Life, just for coming up with the best caption to the picture that we posted. There will be another caption contest coming up soon, so check it out. Search Hunt Life on Facebook. And we're back here with uh, Dave Edwards, wildlife biologist from Westervelt Wildlife Services, and we're talking about legal baiting. Is it good? Is it bad? Uh, some of the positives, Dave. Is, is there a, a positive from a biologist standpoint? Uh, I wouldn't say from a biologist standpoint. Uh, I really struggle to try to, to to think of some some pros of baiting. And you know, there's one, there's one time a year that I I recommend folks to to if if they are going to feed corn. Uh, is to feed them during the post rut uh, because corn is such a, a high energy uh, food as carbohydrate, obviously. And uh, when bucks have been rutting for over a month or, or, or longer, running and chasing does, and they're, they're losing a lot of body weight, corn is is a, a good way to put some fat back on them, get them get their reserves built back back up, so that they get into spring green up, you know, in good shape and can can eat some good quality food at that time to start growing antlers. But from a bite, you know. From, that, from a biological standpoint, I, I can't think of a, a lot of reasons that are, you know, in, in favor of that, that would benefit wildlife. Well, you know, from from an attraction standpoint, obviously it's very attractive, and one good thing is it's biological, but that's what we use when we do our camera surveys uh, because it is so attractive to deer. You know, it's kind of like candy, and that's and that's why it's bait, I guess. But that's what we use for our, our bait, and it can be effective. You know, from a hunting standpoint, you know, we were just talking about how you don't see as many deer when you're uh, when you're sitting over bait. Um, and a lot of folks, you know, seeing on TV, they see these TV shows where folks are whacking these monster bucks on these senderos in Texas. And, you know, they've corned that sendero. And uh, we talked about it a little bit in Georgia, I think. But uh, baiting can be effective, and I think you can see more more deer if it's done right. It just takes a lot more energy and, and effort. Where you have timed feeders and those senderos you're seeing on TV, they've got land managers out there every day, or ranch hand that is going down that road right at daylight. You know when you're going to be hunting, 
and scattering corn down that sendero, and then he'll do it in the afternoon. But he's not putting out five tons of corn. He's right. putting out just enough that deer know they need to get on their feet and get it. When they hear that truck go down, they need to get out there if they want some. Right. And it, and, and you're talking about limited access to the to the food. I mean, you, a limited amount. Jeff and I were talking during the break, and, and the other thing that we talked about, too, was non-native species concentration. Mm-hmm. Texas would be an example. Florida, South Georgia, as you well know, we have a serious hog problem. Well, and, yeah, that was one of my other big issues. Um, I just gave a talk a week ago, and the two big hot, hot buttons was, were coyote right. and hogs. You know, and I, I grew up in Florida, and I was like, like, like you, Kurt, and we're, we're used to seeing hogs all the time. We've, we've grown up with them. But they have expanded and expanded, and they're really becoming, honestly, becoming a serious issue in a lot of places. Because, as you and I know, how bad the damage is, and they're also competing. Now, what do you think is going to fuel their reproduction and spread? Is going to be, you know, a concentration of bait piles of corn across the landscape. Right. So, and, and not only them, um, you've got, you know, nest predators such as raccoons, possums, wood rats, things of that nature, that. You know, if, if baiting is put across the landscape, that's just going to fuel their reproduction and uh, even, you know, like throw gas on the fire as far as trying to control hogs. Well, let me let me throw out something that would be maybe on the argument for the other side. If it's worked for Texas, if it's worked for Kansas, why can't it work for Alabama? Why can't it work for Georgia or, you know, Tennessee? I mean, what's wrong with that? I, I think it can, but it, it, it would it, from a hunting standpoint, now we're looking. I'm looking at it from uh, someone saying that baiting is going to help them increase their harvest and have better hunt. Um, the regular 90% of the population of hunters that bait are dumping corn piles, you know, in front of their their ladder stand. And those, you know, when they go visit their property or the hunt club, they've got eight or ten bags of corn in the back of the truck, and they pour pour piles out, and or they, you know, they they fill up their spin feeders and there's spin feeders all over the place going off. Um, if it was done like I was talking about in Texas, I think I think it'd be more effective. The uh, the other thing, you know, thinking thinking about it this way, uh, you know, there's always uh, most deer hunters know that when we have a lot of acorns, when we have a bumper crop of acorns, uh, it really reduces deer movement. That's because there's food everywhere, and so deer don't have to move near as much. If you've got a landscape in a baiting culture going on in an area where every hunter out there has got their own bait pile and their spin feeder, and even if they're trying to do time stuff, then you're n- the deer just aren't going to have to move as far. Mm-hmm. So it, it really simulates having a bumper acorn crop every year, if that makes sense. Right. No, it does. I know in our place last year and the year before, we had an incredible mass crop. It was just, even this year, was just nuts. I mean, it, it until just recently... The, the swamp oaks quit dropping just, to, you know, about a month and a half ago. No, you, you make a good point, Dave, because I remember a couple of years ago, uh, on my place, I made a phenomenal acorn crop. And, uh, and I remember, you know, planting food plots and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, I mean, I could have been farmer of the year. Yeah. You Look, know, because great. The food plots, I mean, they were a foot high and, you know, a month and a half into it, and I'm like, man, did I do a good job on this food plot? And then I'm sitting there going, well, wait a minute. Where are the deer? <laughs> <laughs> That's not why I planted this food plot to grow a good crop. I wanted it to get eaten. What's going exactly. on here? And it just, yep. it just exactly. wasn't getting eaten. Uh, but, you know, then here's another argument. 
from a quality deer management perspective, you're trying to harvest mature bucks and age bucks. You know, doesn't baiting give you an opportunity to really judge an animal before harvest? It would if you were hunting at 2 in the morning, if that makes sense. I mean, I know Texas and, and Kansas, they're harvesting some good bucks. and um, But, you know, through all the camera surveys, if you think about all the you're putting cameras on 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 bait piles to try to assess deer on your property, or you know just having your regular trail cameras out. How often are you getting a mature buck in the daylight? If you think about that, I want I want to say I don't have the exact numbers, but I would take a stab that there's probably uh, one one out of thirty to forty pictures of a mature buck when we do surveys that he's in the daylight. When he's in the daylight, he's just barely in the daylight. So, uh, well, look to take to take one step towards what Jeff just said too. What about the QDM approach towards does like Jeff's talking about? And yeah, what? And could, Dave didn't hear my comment. We talked about it during a break. Right. My comment was, you know, from a from a, a doe harvest perspective. I mean, you put out corn. I mean, the does and like you said, deer think it's almost like candy. I mean, it's a great opportunity to, to at least attract does to to make those management decisions to harvest does and to attract deer. I mean, you may not get the mature bucks, but certainly you can attract does. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a uh, that's probably a good way to do that, or, or or a way to do that. But yeah, you're going to attract does, and I think uh, I talked with Brian, and I can't remember exactly what the well, where his data came from, but and you're talking about were, Brian, the the uh, CEO of QDMA, that's Brian right, Murphy. Brian Murphy. Brian Murphy. Um, you know, because of the Georgia law going on, and we, I was I. I called him because uh, I wanted to get some of his input and take because we're working on the Alabama uh, stuff. So um, you were talking about being selective and be able to, you know, the deer will be there in front of you. The perception is deer will be on the corn pile, and you're going to be able to really observe them, age them, and make a lot better choice decision in, in your harvest. And he was saying there was nothing that he found uh, that is proving that, um, that, that they're able to, because the mature bucks aren't coming. They're, they're just younger younger deer. Um, and he's seen it being more effective initially, you know, right when you first put it out or right when you first start baiting, deer will come to it and so forth. But a couple bad experiences there, or I don't know, maybe a lot of scent. I don't know what happens, but, uh, after time, over time, it's mostly, uh, young deer that are coming to it. Mm-hmm. Well, well you know, here's the thing. Is it bad? I mean, you know, there's different diseases out there for deer, you know, uh, chronic wasting disease, uh, other things that I can't even pronounce. But, I mean, does that, but we're about out of time here. got a minute, Dave. Do, okay. does, is, is having bait sites bad for the transmission of diseases? Is it bad for the animals? It, no doubt. It, it concentrates animals, and that's been, you know, an argument against baiting from, for, a long, for a long time. Um, obviously, when you, when you concentrate animals into a, uh, say a feeder, and they're sticking their faces next to each other, and they're you know they're defecating on the site, and they're um, you know licking the side of the feeder or licking the ground, that kind of thing. You obviously have an increased chance of disease spreading. Um, and and CWD, chronic wasting disease, is the primary disease of concern right now. And you know I, I try to ca- caution folks that just because Alabama doesn't have a known uh, CWD outbreak or Georgia or whatever state. You still have to remain guarded. Uh, I believe last year, Virginia, West Virginia, Maryland, and I think Minnesota all discovered CWD, and this is in the past uh, past year. Right. So yeah. just be- just because it hasn't come out, 
doesn't mean that it's not there. So you need to be real cautious. And that CWD is a bad deal. All right. Well, when we come back, we'll kind of move on to the next topic, and that's turkeys and coyotes. Here we are in the spring season, and I, we had an experience, and we'll share that. When we come back here with Dave Edwards, wildlife biologist, here on the Hunt Life Outdoor Show. As a hunter, we all know that perfect morning. You wake up early before the sun, you have a cup of coffee, grab some snacks, and start towards your stand. You have waited for this morning all year. The wind's perfect, the temperature's just right, and the bucks are in full rut. You sit in the dark, straining your ears for any little noise. The sun finally starts to filter through the trees, then it happens. A doe comes by you on a fast trot. You immediately clip your release to your bow because you know he is coming. You hear a loud grunt and see antlers. It's a buck, a big buck. You stand up trying not to concentrate on the antlers. Your hands are shaking. You can't control the trembling in your knees. You draw the bow back praying the buck continues down the trail. But as big bucks do, he turns. Your heart sinks. You have a decent shot, but not one you're comfortable with. You decide to let him go. Even though you're disappointed, you can't help but think just how cool that was. The folks at Hunt Life, they know how you feel. That's why they started Hunt Life, so we can share our outdoor experiences with each other. If you know this feeling, visit HuntLife.com because Hunt Life knows it's all about the outdoor experience. Since the first days at Mossy Oak, we've been about getting close to critters. That's what drove us to create Original Breakup more than 12 years ago. Today we're doing it again with all-new Breakup Infinity. Six layers of detail give it great depth of field. Twelve years of research give it unequaled, effective design. Hey, check it out in stores or online at mossyoak.com. Breakup Infinity from Mossy Oak, America's number one camel pattern, just got better. The first time that we saw combat as a unit, it was more surreal than anything. You're under fire, you're getting blown up. There's definitely adrenaline. There was the explosion, and I remember just opening my eyes, and it got both of my legs. I had surgery after surgery, and I was on a lot of pain medicine. What's going to happen next, and how long am I going to be here? The Wounded Warrior Project dropped off a backpack for me, and it had everything in there that I could possibly have needed at that time. Peer visitors, people who had been where I had been before, said, look, brother, everything's going to be okay. Three months from now, four months from now, a year from now, you'll be fine. That type of thing is an invaluable service. To be honest, I don't know if I would be as well adjusted as I am now if it wasn't for them. To learn more, call 1-877-832-6997 or visit WoundedWarriorProject.org. I've been a member of the Federation for 18 years. The Federation stands for good stewardship of the resources and preserving our hunting heritage. Through those efforts, I want my kids to be able to enjoy the same privilege that I have. My father joined the Federation for me, and I've done the same for my children. Jakes, women in the outdoors, and wheeling sportsmen, they want to be the best conservation organization in the world. Hey, each and every week, the Hunt Life Outdoor Show continues to grow, and we want to wel- welcome in our newest affiliate, and that's KWBG in Des Moines, Iowa. Uh, welcome, all the Iowans, and I uh, was just up there recently for the Aiming for a Cure event that was up there in Iowa City, raising money for a children's hospital, and we're back with uh, with this edition, and we've got Dave Edwards uh, 
wildlife biologist from Westervelt, and we've talked baiting for deer, and that's obviously a hot topic in a couple states right now and certainly can be a hot topic across the country. And, Dave, me and you turkey hunted on Monday and Tuesday, and we had an interesting story, and I'll just kind of preview it here real quick because it leads to a topic that I want to get into. We're hunting and day two on a particular uh, area where we had two gobblers at, and the first day we, we couldn't quite get the shot. Sealed the deal. Yeah, and so day two we said, all right, we're, we're, we're in. We, we know where they want to be. We're going to go ahead and get in there early and set up a blind, and Dave's going to bring his bow. Where There's two gobblers. We're going to be able to take both, you know, one with a bow. Oh, we're being really optimistic. Yeah, we're being really optimistic. <laughs> You're going to chili wop two at one time. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, and, and so we, we're running a little late, and, uh, mm-hmm. And sure enough, the turkeys did exactly what we wanted them to do. They flew down right over our heads. It was one of the coolest things I've ever seen. Were they gobbling? No. They were not making a sound. No, and that kind of leads to our story in that they flew down. There's jakes. There's two gobblers. There's hens, and, you know, they're doing their thing in front of us, and we get them at 30 yards and could have taken one of them then with a gun, but we needed them a little closer for the bow, and then they kind of worked their way away, and we knew they wanted to come by us eventually out to a big ag field. Right. And all of a sudden, from the far side of this little opening in the woods, around the corner comes a flash, and it's a coyote. Mm -hmm. And he comes into this field and runs right in the middle of them and looks like a a bird dog that wasn't trained properly and jumping up in the air trying to grab Oh, that must have been cool to see that. Oh, it was incredible. And the turkeys, they fly up, and they land in the trees right above our heads, and we had to sit still for another half an hour, 45 minutes before they all start to come down and and eventually they came down, but then they left. Now, what was the yote doing? Was he spinning around in the field? or Dave, he was trying to eat. Yeah, he just kind of ran out there and almost acted like he wasn't hungry, didn't he, Jeff? He was just, like, chasing them. And yeah, like, kind of like I he was think playing he with them. tried to catch one, but they were, he was like, acting like he was playing. They were flushing all up, flushing all up. And, you know, before we go any further, I've got to give Jeff some credit because one of the long beards landed 20 yards from us, I don't know, up up in the tree. Uh, halfway up the tree on a, on a little limb, right where Jeff's gun was pointing. And uh, we're sitting there, and like Jeff said, we just sat there, and we're going to wait and let everybody calm down, let them come back out, you know, pitch back down, and we'll be back in action. But after sitting there, with tur- I'm literally turkeys right over our heads, and not moving, and you're so intense. After, you know, a good little while of that, I leaned over to Jeff and said, I won't talk bad about you if you shoot him. Because <laughs> his gun was pointing right at the turkey, you know. <laughs> but he he didn't. He waited, and uh, they ended up pitching back down and going the opposite way. But that is so yeah, the, cool, though. The one one of the gobblers was literally he was he was right down my barrel, you know, on a on wow. a tree that had been damaged from an ice storm. It was kind of leaning over. I mean, I I could have shot him. Wow. Uh, we could have shot the one that was a little bit behind us and closer. Uh, and I just, we we were just being greedy. We were trying to get two. So this leads to my question. How much of an impact has the coyotes' migration across the, the the Mississippi, I guess you could say, because, I mean, they've always been prevalent in the West. How much of an impact have coyotes had on turkeys, and how much of an impact have they had on their vocalization? Yeah, that's, boy, that's two good questions there, Jeff. And I think, I think as biologists we, and, and managing that resource, that's something that we really want to know more about. Uh, like I told you, my master's project was revolved around turkeys and nest uh, nest predators, and one part of my study as well was picking up scats on the roads. And I picked up scats. That's poo. For, for those that don't right. know, poo. <laughs> poo. I was picking up uh, all of them: uh, bobcat, coyote, and fox uh, poo on the road. 
and we would wash that. We'd put it in a little bag and wash it out, get all the fecal material out, and then what was left was actually like the hair and the bone and scales off of turkey legs, those kind of things. Really? So you could you could identify what they were eating. I always thought uh, a bobcat bared it like another cat. D- Dave, I'm proud of you because you've been using a lot of politically correct terminology so far. Do they say defecate? Uh, scat, poo. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> That's great, man. We're loving it. But you know, well, think think about this. Uh, you know, I know you've walked down the road before and seen a, a little pile of persimmon seeds laying there. Oh yeah. And and what that was, it used to be a, a pile of coyote poo, and as it got washed down over time, all the fecal material you know went through and you know got dissolved, and all that was left was the seeds from the persimmon he ate. So that's. That's kind of how we we did that, and uh, hair is made up of different you know cell structures, so you can actually put it under a microscope and tell what species that was, whether it was a white-tailed deer or whether it was a cotton rat or a you know cotton-tailed rabbit, those kind of things. And so, having said all that, um, I did a diet analysis as well, and turkeys did show up in their diet, but it was mainly right you know during the poult when they were, when they were hatching. Um, so it was young and, turkeys. It was young turkeys, and then when when it when it did show up in the diet, it was actually less than one percent of their diet. So they were still um, feeding on other things at the time, and they were really in in, a, in the big picture. They were really just opportunistic feeders. I mean, whatever was available. If there was a watermelon field that came, you know, the watermelons came ripe, they were eating watermelons. Or where I was, you know, there was a lot of blackberries. There was a lot of persimmons in the fall. Uh, but they were mainly eating, you know, eating rabbits and rats and things of that nature. Now, let me change gears real quick just to kind of throw this out there. There was another thing we were looking at was deer. And similar results in my study anyway, that less than 1% of their diet was deer during fawning season. Um, so there was a little bit of fawn, you know, they were catching some fawns um, at that time. They Deer was a big part of their diet, but it, it, it turned on during hunting season. And it took us a little bit to figure out, you know, we were, at first we were thinking they were tracking down and catching deer. Oh, I so see what, what you're it, saying. Yeah, what it turned out to be is they were actually eating uh, carrion, or, or they, were, they were getting in the gut piles. Here's another one of those and, words. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you and I would have said gut, gut pile. pile. <laughs> gut pile. <laughs> uh, yeah, they were getting into the gut piles, and so it ended up being a big part of their diet, um, but it wasn't because they were killing the animals. That's really interesting. So what you're saying in a nutshell is basically – they're not running around catching this stuff as much as we think they are. It's only a couple percent of their diet. Well, that was my my research. Right. I've I've just you know there's there's it's such it is literally I can't tell you how hot of a topic it is everywhere we go now talking about deer. Um, I'm sure you're hearing a lot of it, and that's why we're going to talk about it. But uh, there's been studies here uh, over the last few years that are people are trying to see what is actually going on, and you know there's there's definitely. I guess there's four or five different studies. Maybe one of the biggest ones was at Savannah River site. And, um, well, Dave, Dave, hold that thought about the Savannah River site. We're going to take a break and we come back and, and you can kind of put the information out there about that. And then I want to get back to this vocalization thing. And maybe we don't have scientific results. Right. Mm-hmm. But just get your personal opinion. Okay. Folks, you're listening to the Hunt Life Outdoor Show and our special guest is biologist Dave Edwards from Westervelt Wildlife Services. And we'll be right back after the break. As a turkey hunter, we've all been there. You're on your eighth day of hunting the same gobbler, and every morning he's made you look silly. Your kids think you've lost your mind. Your wife's beginning to wonder if you're really turkey hunting. You keep telling yourself, this morning will be different. Conditions are perfect. 45 degrees, very little wind. 
and there was no moon. As you sit in the dark, your eyes get heavy. With your eyes closed, the whippoorwills keep you awake. And just before the sun rises, the familiar song of the cardinal catches your attention because you know it won't be long until the game begins. You've decided this morning to be quiet. Just let him gobble on a roost. Just after daybreak, he does just that. You know it's him because his gobble is way too familiar. It's all you can do not to call back. You hear him fly down, and then you hear the hen start to call. You make one soft call and get the gun ready. First you see a hen, then all you see is a swinging beard. He comes into view, and you fold him up. This morning, you guessed right. What a cool feeling. The folks at Hunt Life, they know how you feel. Because at Hunt Life, they know it's all about the outdoors experience. Visit them at HuntLife.com. You want to get really close to critters this fall? Then you'll have to try all-new Breakup Infinity from Mossy Oak. Six layers of detail give it great depth of feel. Twelve years of research give it unequaled effective design. Together, they represent the most dramatic, high-tech leap in the history of camo. Check it out in stores or online at mossyoak.com. Breakup Infinity from Mossy Oak, America's number one camo pattern just got better. We know the future of hunting depends on our nation's youth. But did you know that in many states, it's illegal for you to take your son or daughter hunting until the age of 12 or even older? As a result, we have fewer young hunters, and the Families of Field program is designed to eliminate those barriers. Hunting is safe, and the safest hunters of field are young people with adult mentors. Visit our website at familiesoffield.org to find out how you can bring more families afield. Back to the Hunt Life Outdoor Show. Hey, during the week, check out HuntLifeOutdoorShow.com, and you can find out who's coming up next on the show, what we'll be talking about. Listen to the previous shows via the Hunt Life podcast. Get a little background on us and join the Hunt Life online community to share with everyone else what's uh, really going on in the Hunt Life. It's our website, HuntLifeOutdoorShow.com, and we've got our special guest here for a few more minutes, and that's Dave Edwards, biologist from Westervelt Wildlife Services. And Dave... You talked about this Savannah River site study on coyotes. Savannah River site is in Georgia, and probably the, the one of the biggest studies that has ever happened with coyotes. What did that study find? Uh, it was I don't have the exact numbers, but it was they definitely showed that coyotes were having an impact on fawn survival. Um, they were catching fawns, in other words. Um, but one of the things I was going to point out a minute ago was between the four or five different studies. That there was a common theme between some of them that, one, if you have poor habitat, which Savannah Riverside was relatively poor habitat. When I say poor habitat, poor cover, poor fawning cover, poor nesting cover. It's all pine trees, isn't it? It's it's like, you know, big long leaf, you know, real wide open kind of wire grassy kind of stuff. Right. Uh, Not real tall wire grass, but I mean, you know, kind of camp blending kind of habitat, but um, just not real good habitat equals more, more, more mortality because there's not good cover. The other uh, of, of the other studies, um, intense predator removal definitely increased survival, and um, that's something that you know a lot of folks ask me about. And yeah, removing them out of the system and trapping them and shooting them and you know having combat against them definitely helps. But you've got to do it every year. I mean, you got to keep after it. I mean, you can't just do it one time and think your problem's solved. And and then the other the other studies uh, were if you had a pretty balanced predator to doe or, or deer ratio then you had a higher mortality, uh, and both of these studies were where populations of deer were very low, and so the coyotes were kind of keeping up with the deer herd. 
the the deer the, there wasn't enough fawns that were overwhelming the coyotes and they couldn't get them all. So anyway, so you know, like Kurt, you asked me, or you said, you know, so your study saying this? Well, yeah, my study said that, but there's local things that go on at different properties right. that have different situations. So so yeah. All right. Well, here, here's my next question. We've only got a minute. Uh, do you think, and there hadn't been really any studies to speak of, do you think coyotes have had an impact on their vocalization? Because if a turkey yeah. gobbles, it attracts the hunters because we <clears> kind of key in on where the gobblers are. Are coyotes doing the same thing? You know, I don't know any research that's, that's shown that, but somebody out there has got to have some information on gobbler call counts. We were doing that with the Mississippi study where we go around at daylight and count the number of gobblers we were hearing gobble um, over time, over like seven years there. And um, it'd be interesting to know. But, you know, Jeff, just like our hunt, you know, they're sitting out there uh, strutting and all, and a coyote comes running, busting them out. Uh, you know, I'm just saying from Dave's standpoint, I wouldn't be gobbling. No. You know, because that's, that's just going to attract attract somebody to me. Yeah. I, I know from a personal experience, I've killed coyotes, two of them that have come to my calls. Yeah. Personally. Yeah. yeah. Hey, hey, part of my uh I'd say I'd trap 30 coyotes and put collars on them. I'd lose five to eight, maybe ten of them during turkey season. Because mm. people would call them, and they'd come in, they'd shoot them. And they'd call me up and say, hey, I've got your collar. All right, hey, Dave, <laughs> thank, thanks for uh, spending the time with us. We've got to run, man. We're out of time. Okay. Folks, All right. Thank you, buddy. Dave Edwards, wildlife biologist from Westervelt Wildlife Services, and, and thanks to him for educating us because uh, certainly two, two hot topics there, particularly right now yeah, absolutely. during turkey season. And certainly hot topic coming up here for baiting and all that kind of stuff. We'll join everybody next week. Same time, same place. Have a great weekend. Thank you for listening to the Hunt Life Outdoor Show. Be sure to check out the very latest in the Hunt Life by logging on to HuntLife.com. The Hunt Life Outdoor Show is a product of Hunt Life Productions. Copyright 2011.